Welcome to Misfits and Rejects, a podcast about the lifestyle design of expatriates, travelers, entrepreneurs, and adventurers. I'm your host, Chapin Cruder. Enjoy. I didn't fit in America. With cocaine, there's just always too many guns and too many bad attitudes. I quit the limiting stories. Really try to overcome that fear. And right there, for any of your listeners, a lot of what I was to do in the rest of my life was formulated by the fact I just went and did it. Welcome to another episode of Misfits and Rejects. Today, again, for I think, what is it, the third time, we are joined by Captain John Robert Eames <laughs> in Higante Bay, Nicaragua, who is yeah. always a pleasure to have on the show. Actually, probably the most listened to person of all the episodes. Whenever I'm checking my analytics, his podcast is always high up there and most listened to. Ah, I didn't know that. So that's, uh, yeah, kudos to you, my friend. You have cool. a lot of cool things no. to say that people are interested in hearing about. Right on, right on. <laughs> but welcome back, dude. And it's cool to have you because you are going through a tremendously big change in life right now based on the fact that you just suffered a huge loss through the hurricane down here in Nicaragua. Not loss in the sense of like you got completely wiped out, but from an expat who had been living here a lot of years, building up a, a very reputable big business, Mother Nature kind of ripped through and, and took what it wanted. And so I thought it'd be kind of fun to touch upon that and just see where you're at with it mentally, physically, emotionally, because I wasn't here for the storm, folks. I had to go back to the States and make some money, but I'd, I'd seen pictures and it was a complete shit show. I mean, the house I came back to in which John lets me live in has no front yard anymore. The restaurant has no front patio anymore i mean everything's still inhabitable but i mean it's still the dollars that it's going to take you to rebuild the way it was is pretty big yeah we estimated through the idea of doing some sort of go funding thing like 20 grand 20 grand to get more or less back to par yeah a little off well, that doesn't include the sailboat right yeah so just yeah, just the property damages. Right, because yeah, you lost your catamaran, which was uh, a pretty big fixture within the business structure of making money, yeah? Yeah, it was a bit of like the the activities flagship. It brought people here, and then from that, we introduced the other activities and the establishment. Yeah, and hopefully in a, in a future episode, we'll have John and his first mate talk about the actual event of losing the, that uh, catamaran, because it's incredibly... Exciting to hear the story, and I mean, you guys almost literally almost lost your lives. But we'll save that for maybe a future episode. Where okay, yeah, <laughs> that's a good one. Um, but yeah, man, I mean, where are you at? How do you feel? I mean, you're an expat in Nicaragua. You've been here a long time. You just took a pretty big punch to the nose, one on the chin. <laughs> yeah. Um, where are you at? How are you feeling? Um, I feel good because um, I think the way I heard it put best was through misfortune comes a sense of bliss. So. Um, it was hard enough of a hit because in my personal life too, um, I'm going through a, a separation with the mother of my little two kids and, and that's proving difficult. So it's, it's been a compounding months, a compounding hurricane in the sense of, of the perfect storm for John's life, <laughs> turning 40 next year. Like, where am I? Who am I? Reevaluating everything because I kind of can trying to, um, you know, uh, just look at everything as a whole. And I guess where it could be interesting to the listeners would be that. So you pursue your dream. You move to where you want to be. So you have a, you have a, you, you have the atmosphere, the environment that you think is best for you to thrive in. 
and then you apply your interests and and your and your personality and character to the place and and give it a try and in my case here it worked it worked well um i've always taken a lot of risk and i took a bunch of risk in a bunch of different directions and uh, it's been paying off uh up until recently a lot of a lot of it got called so um i guess after a decade of doing business and feeling like like i had a lot of great accomplishments i had the real sense of loss which is good for i think building personality and a good strong sense of character then to you know help the help my kids then when they have these issues re- relate and and help guide them but um so how i get through this is kind of um the the way in which i imagine myself being available or valuable to to my kids really so like being the the role model that you hope to have them see in a time of um hardship that they can then emulate because obviously they're going to go through their ups and downs in life and they're going to have their yeah. hardships come so you're hoping to set that kind of model of character of somebody who is willing to forge forward not cower away and say fuck this place throw up your hands i'm done with it yeah. you know, stick it out rebuild to whatever capacity you can yeah with a smile on your face with enthusiasm yeah the I I think we come from like a tribe of searchers. So even though like I put a lot of roots down here, like I'm still looking within. I mean, the yoga practice gets stronger, my eating habits are healthier. Um my conversations are more are more like uh like internal growth interested. So I'm looking at the whole picture. Traveling was a huge part of my life and I grew a lot because of it. Will I travel again? It seems more possible now that I've been diminished to a smaller business that's more manageable like um handling it's different it doesn't have the same momentum it did before so it's not like i can get out of that driver's seat also um my kids are getting of this age so i got an 8-year-old a 4-year-old and a 2-year-old and they have a lot of luxuries and they do a lot of uh nice things all the time and get what they want they're they're privileged kids and i don't know how good that is for them and i know nobody else in their life as close as me can give them um a true exposure to like what it is to to have a bit of uh of pain and and reality you know like a a little bit of balance in what sense like how would you apply that to their lives or- like like um like taking away the luxuries Having, so what taking him camping and and not using a bug net or something like that or? yeah or or like uh maybe me not having TVs in my house or okay. me taking TVs out of my life cuz i don't expect to just like do as i say not as i do right you know <laughs> but me removing TV me r- removing some of the devices mm-hmm. yeah i mean i've noticed over the past few weeks that you've been spending with your children you're out on the beach at night sleeping next to open fire you know yeah. make it it's not comfortable per se but it's still like they seem to be having a blast yeah doesn't seem to bother them kids have fun no matter what yeah but that would be the example is yeah doing things and and trying to keep up that that model of of just i don't know having a simple life again that's kind of why i moved down here was to right we chose here peely the mother of anicha the the 8-year-old daughter i mean we what i thought we were discussing anyway she's still here too so Yes, it still rings true, but that of raising our kids on the beach and with a lot of nature and stuff like that. So that's still very poignant, important. And 
I guess that's one of the keys. And then I'm noticing also as like my eight-year-old becomes more inquisitive and we talk about death, we talk about God, um, you know, the books I have in my library, the references, um, you know, I guess it's old school, you know, I know we can Google anything and get whatever answer, but the process, it's like kind of, it's like rolling a joint, you know, it's Mm. like you just, something about the whole, the whole action sometimes surpasses the, the importance of it surpasses the effect. So knowing the information was less important than me being in my library with Anita trying to find it. Right. So, and making fire simplicities, watch Captain Fantastic. Thank you, Casey. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That movie's actually pretty good folks. Really we haven't good. seen it yet. New Netflix, or maybe it's not on Netflix, but it's called Captain Fantastic about a, it's an a, alternative it's, father raising a family out in the, in the woods. Yeah. But we're a medium of that in a, in a lot of ways. It's an extreme in the movie, but just in the way in which, like, you go back in time when you move to Nicaragua and you, and you, um, yeah, you try to do things that in the states you take for granted because you don't have. And when do you build states or fires rather in in California? Mm-hmm. Can't even build fires on the beach really anymore. Mm-hmm. You have to really go camping here. We can do it every day. Yeah, in the middle of the day in the morning, make a fire. There's no cop pulling up on you saying, like, you can't be camped out here at 10 o'clock at night. No. Also, giving the kids wine, mm-hmm. you know, being half naked, all these things that, like, it it, it puts things into, into a, a healthy context, you know? It's like when you hide kids from anything, when they grow up and then they get access to it, they, you know, if it's a new thing, they're really interested. And if they have the strength and the power to become really interested you know, beyond maybe a point of healthy, then they can really where, you know, like the, like give a kid a little sip of beer or wine and, and the, and then they'll know what the taste is. And one night they'll drink too much. And one day they'll know what it is to throw up. But there isn't this like, once you turn 21, you're out the gate and you stumble, mm-hmm. you know, it's just like you, you know, it slows you down, but you keep walking forward. And that goes also for the, for the, uh, the other things we say, we said sexuality is something that like we're, I'm having to face, like I have three young girls and, and they're smart and they're just girls. They're, they're still kids. So it hasn't come up yet, but the jokes, I hang out with guys. We have jokes about when your daughters reach teenage years and imagining that like is real, you know? Mm-hmm. And then also it helps me step back and, and be a feminist when I think women are sexualized, you know, mm-hmm. like they're too much and stuff happening in Hollywood stuff like, yeah, I'm aware. And I don't think those things are necessarily right. And I wouldn't mind if they changed. I'd like my daughters. Uh, and I, okay. I would, you know, I have good manners mm-hmm. to an extent, but, um, I, even myself, like should reevaluate how I treat women and how I see women and how I've seen them or, and, uh, be better models for the type of men that my daughters could then be interested in possibly because have a healthier outlook on women. Yeah. Period. How do you think your daughters perceive you as a male? Um, I in think relationships in general, in, in general, like pirate Viking kind of like icon, iconic. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm larger than life. I'm still big. I, my voice is still strong. I haven't failed in their eyes too much yet. They're still too small. <laughs> <laughs> and I think, um, I know where I have failed in. Um, you know, and, and providing a good example of relationships because I haven't been able to keep them. Mm-hmm. And I feel like I've always had, I'm polite to women and I respect women that could be debated, 
you know, not everybody who I think I've respected feels respected by me, and I'm learning and growing from that, sure. Um, but at, at least in the, the, the pleasantries, I'm, I'm a very polite person. My mom raised me, you know, my dad has four daughters, four half-sisters, so I'm very aware of the, the woman's, you know, presence. And then uh, I'm 40 almost, so I've had relationships and listened, I hoped, enough where I can, I can understand a little more. So, you know, when people get running their mouth about women when they aren't women, <laughs> like, that doesn't sound right to me anymore. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure I was probably someone who used to do that, mm -hmm. you know? How, how is it, you know, growing or raising, sorry, three daughters, you know, in a, in a different culture, a completely different culture than the one you were raised in, where... The cultural norms are different, you know, for male and female roles within a relationship. Um, you know, we live in Nicaragua. It is a culture where it's highly masculine. You know, women are definitely, I think, a very strong force, but within the home, you know, like I would say actually women kind of run the show, but it's behind the scenes where outwardly like men are very macho, uh -huh. you know, and, and the odds of, you know, one of three of your daughters is going to be falling in love with, you know, a local. Yeah. And how does that make you feel? And what do you think about that? Um, not too much because like, I think my presence as a, as like a, as an individual, as a culture, as like a style is strong enough. Like I'm, I'm really kind of hard on my girls. You know, mm -hmm. I'm very like, if I, I, I jump on everything I don't like, you know, I, I make them really responsible. I demand I heard that once, like, if you want your girls to be great, nag them, you know, like be hard on them and with a lot of love, always remembering to give, you know, reminding them you love them. They feel comfortable. And I feel like we have that relationship thus so far. Um, and then the other things like Nicaraguan culture, it has pros and cons, but I'm not that. So I don't focus much on that. I try to have them be strong, period, you know, learn jujitsu, um, learn how to use a pistol, you know, learn how to, you know, guns and and how to think about situations, you know, we were, uh, Nietzsche was driving the other day in my lap and she works the gears and drives and there was a car stopped on the side of the road. She's learning how to drive. And there's a bunch of guys changing a tire and come, we're standing up, kind of watching us come. And I go, would you stop for this car? And she's like, uh, no. And I go, good. Don't ever stop for anybody changing. You know, if you're alone in the car even if it's in the day, you don't need to stop. Let it be somebody else who can mm -hmm. stop. You know, you take care of yourself, put yourself in safe situations. So those sorts of things, they're ready for the world, I hope. You yeah. know, and I know we traveled everywhere. It's different everywhere. You got some basics, good basics. And then uh, the idea of them, you know, uh, adopting the culture strong, like that's very realistic in that, you know, Sofan is Nicaraguan and very Nicaraguan. So they're going to be very Nicaraguan you know, aspects of their life and maybe their, their love, their love interests also. And I love Nicaragua and I really care for a lot of Nicaraguans. So I, I chose this place. I'd mm -hmm. have to accept that they did too. And I think they would, I think, um, yeah, they're, I think they're a beautiful thing for hope anyway, that through this exposure of being around so many diverse people and very eclectic, strong people, you know, that get through things the best they can, could then mold these little personality characters that grow up to be just like great for any environment. I, I, with the, with the possibilities of them traveling, cause they have their American passports, you know, they go anywhere. I think they will. If they retire in Nicaragua, I wouldn't be surprised, yeah. you know, like I did. 
but here I am, you know, in California, my parents probably would have said that wouldn't, you know, they were, they were setting things up, how great California is and imagining us wanting to live there. And mm-hmm. one of four, one of five of us don't. So yeah, just, it's an, I accept anything though. I just hope to be their best friends, you know, guiding them the best I can and available, hundred percent supportive, understanding, um, hard discipline, you know, real, like, I love it when my daughters give me an option or give me the opportunity to be like real, you know, like we don't do that. Yeah. (laughs) But, you know, love and courage to teach the kids and have, and try to, Suzanne said this to me. Um, she said, find kids doing good, reward kids for doing good. We notice when they're messing up and we like to tell them no, but if we pay more attention to them, having fun and doing good things, sharing and being kind, and we reward them for that, or we acknowledge that, I think we can really help them develop a great, confident, strong sense of self that that kindly moves forward. Good for the world. Who knows? Yeah, you kind of touched upon, um, you know, the business now being downsized by Mother Nature, and it almost seeming at this point like it's affording you kind of a, a new opportunity to maybe head out and travel again, where say six months ago you were locked in, you, you felt probably for another 10 years solid before you might be able to even consider that. Yeah. And my question you would be after, you know, talking about your children, you know, where would you then take them next? What kind of experiences would you hope to expose them to travel wise? Um, because you're going to get that opportunity now, you know, it yeah. seems like, so what, where would be the first place you take say Nietzsche? She's an eight year old. India. India. Yeah. Why? Just cause it's really different <laughs> and really poor. So somehow you think the, the difference and the poverty amplifies someone's experience in order to help them grow with a positive character? Yeah, the different, the, the fact it's so different would be, makes it interesting. Mm-hmm. And then it's, uh, it's so beautiful, but also mm-hmm. so strongly, you know, impoverished and, and sad in some ways. So it's a great place to work out, you know, concepts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I hear, you know, the poverty thing comes up a lot in conversations and India obviously always comes up for us, you know, since we spent three months there and I think we both took our own bits from it. And, um, I feel like when poverty does come up and not between you and I, but a lot of people always use poverty as like a negative as like, Oh, you know, we have to take people to a poor place in order for them to see what the rest of the world looks like and lives like, which is true. However, I sometimes feel people are hoping that it gives this everlasting impression to a a young person that you don't want to be like this. You know, you don't like, I'm going to take you here to, to see what poor people really look like and live like. So you don't ever have to be like that. Mm -hmm. And I know for you and I, that when we encountered these places, these poor places, I, I mean, I can't speak for you. For me, I wanted to live like that. Like that poverty, that joy that these people emitted, like they had something in them that they were really proud about and joyful about that I didn't have coming from the first world. And I was living in a two-story house, nice backyard, and these people were happier than me. So I'm thinking like, if they're poor and they're happy, there's something in poverty that I want. I want to be poor too. Yeah. You know, and I think that perspective has always kind of lingered where I feel like, you know, there's that desire to try to encourage kids not to be poor. Yeah. I wouldn't think of it like that because, um, 
it's interesting what you said. I was seeing it kind of, it's a humbling experience, like、mm-hmm. to be living poor or to be experiencing poor. And then it's a, that being a humble,、um, is a, is a great place to build a lot of ideas from humility. It's a, you know, it's a virtue. And I can also see where people would try to scare other people, like, Eat all your, eat all your chicken. Think of the starving kids in Africa, you know, like, I don't know. But yeah, I hadn't thought of it like that. It's, um, yeah, also still young, like thinking of the other places that are nicer. Like I liked Japan a lot and a lot to gain from Japan. China's super interesting. Um, we've been to Europe so many times. It's nice. Um, Latin America, I feel like they're very similar from country to country. So. With the exception of maybe doing jujitsu in Brazil or that moving through these countries would just feel similar.、Mm-hmm. Being in the States is its own essence. And then Africa and Australia, I don't even know. So, in the places I've been, like, I'd want to start kind of at the bottom too. Like, it gives her a great sense of how to, you're running on those trains. I mean, you and I saw some gnarly stuff in those trains. We're using trains to get around. You know, you're sleeping on floors and ashrams with like, you know, your sweatshirt for a pillow. And sitting down, you know, maybe the meditation.、Um, and then, okay, from there you go a monastery in China and it's a little different. And then, you know, anywhere you go from basically a, a, an Indian train station, <laughs> it's just going to seem better. So why not? I feel like if I can do it still, which I don't, I think I can. I, we were really good at traveling.、Mm-hmm. And,、um, when I go to the market in Rivas, which is still considered a third world place, you know, like it's, it's, it's real easy for me now. The meat parts, the fish parts, you know, the people messed up begging and stuff, like no problem.、So、if anything, it's like I've, one thing I've gotten from all of this is in that I regret I didn't do more, but I couldn't have because I just didn't know is do more. Like, Make more of an effort to have a connection when it was available. Like, I had so many, I had so many walls up, you know, messed up, handicapped people begging scared me. You know, like, don't look at me, don't talk to me, you know, begging in general, like extreme poverty, um, you know, mutilation, public bathrooms, you know, like on the side of the street, whatever, you know, I feel like those are like, we saw dead bodies, dogs eating dead bodies and like, Trying to see it, not see it.、Mm-hmm. And I feel like now it's like, I don't have to see it. Like, I know I showed you a video the other day and you looked away <laughs> and I looked away when I first saw it too.、Uh-huh. That was me being a kid again, I guess, and just wanted shock value. But like my relationship with those things, like I can look away and feel all right. I can, I can, I can engage better now. You know, I'm older. There's less insecurities. There's less, uh, Less self doubt, all the things that you're afraid of ultimately that you project on other people. It makes you not allowed to, you know, embrace or, or engage. So a lot of those things are gone.、Um, also having this whole episode in my life, like, like being here, starting a business, growing that way. Cause when we were young, we didn't know we were idealists. We had our, we'd worked in business, but we didn't have our own. So that's a, that's a great foundational pillar to build. You know, my experiences off of, you、mm-hmm. know, traveling with a Nietzsche, staying at a hostel. Look at what they're doing right here. You know, do you want to stay for another? You like it here? Let's see if we can't paint them a mural and we can stay for free, you know,、mm-hmm. in the dorms and things like that. I'd like to do.、Um, taking the time, being patient, 
getting on the road again, like when I rode that bicycle, I rode a lot and I rode hard. I rode in one direction. I didn't backtrack. I didn't like to backtrack. It was, it was like a, a different goal in my head. Mm-hmm. And I met not very many, just one guy in particular. I forget his name. It was in South China, right? When you get over from Sapa, Vietnam into Yunnan province, it was beautiful. It was fall. The leaves were everywhere on the road, no cars, like, but new roads. China just built these things. And this, I met this dude and he, it was his thing. I'm sure he was kind of like a social recluse when he went back to Santa Fe where he had a house and did something for some money to go back and ride bicycles for years. The guy was riding, riding. And he, uh, he would, I looked at his route. He showed me his map because I didn't even have a map, right? He showed me his map and he, he had little lines out, like out these roads, right? And I was like, going out there. He's like, yeah. And our Chinese visas would only be like a couple months. So he'd go a couple months and do like what I did, leave and then come back, ride more. But when he'd come back, he wouldn't go. He'd be in one little little uh, county, you know, and spend two months in one county. And I was, I'd cross, I'd go from from Shanghai to, to Chongqing in two months, you know. Like mm-hmm. I would cr- cross like four or five states and um, just two different ways of traveling. So I feel like if I went back out there now... Um, and I would do it the, the slower way. And if I had my kids with me, I think it would be a great opportunity. Why rush? We rushed and we did a lot of things. We were scared. We didn't have mentors. Mm-hmm. You know, my mom took me to Europe when I was young and showed me how to enjoy myself. She knew how to sit in the piazza in Vicenza and like drink a limoncello after dinner and like say, just watch the people. And I was like anxious little kid. But I think there were moments where I appreciate it and I learned from that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, taking your time, you know, as you go is definitely one way to do it. And I like, I like the creativity aspect of it where you're taking your kid to a hostel, say, and then maybe having her go explain to the hostel owner that we, we'd love to stay in our night, but can we do a mural for you in exchange? I mean, that's the creative side that I've always appreciated that you had that you try to instill in me and other people that, you know, you, there's so many unique ways to get around this world without having to spend money and then to instill that in your children. I think is just so invaluable Yeah, that she gets to see that she doesn't necessarily have to um, pay the night. She can do something creative with her mind and still like, and, and have a mutually beneficial exchange, you know? And that brings us back to like, you know, a lot of young women use the cards that they're dealt in that sexuality. Mm -hmm. You know, when you're pretty, you get this attention, you get what you want, Mm -hmm. you know, and men are providers. They work and, and get the money and, buy girls what they want, you know, but if you, um, some things and some things are just, you know, unfortunates, you know, where we just don't have the option to be beautiful or we're in an environment where that just doesn't count or something. You have to wear a mask over your face. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Something like that. But, um, if I, I hope for my girls there, they'll be beautiful and they will have the option to feel beautiful, but it won't be a tool like they will use. Mm-hmm. they will know how to use other tools. And I think that'll be important for them. Mm-hmm. And I think very important. Yeah. You, you, um, kind of transitioning subjects, but you, you, you incur or you don't encourage, you basically make all three daughters do yoga with you every morning when they're with you. And it's an hour, sometimes longer, sometimes less. You have a two year old kind of walls around. You have a three year old who's jumping on your back. Yeah. And then you have Anicha who usually sits there and does her best to like participate. What kind of benefits do you think they're getting from that experience every morning? The routine yeah. first, because the yoga is the, 
It's the third thing in the, we wake up, we, we drink water with lime, we walk the dogs, we pour coconut oil, even the little ones, and we do that for 20 minutes. Or Can pull, you explain what that is? Pulling, pulling the coconut oil. Yeah, it's where you put like a shot of coconut oil in your mouth and swish it around for 20 minutes. So you have a two-year-old holding coconut oil in her mouth for 20 minutes? The two-year-old doesn't. She'll fake sip it. <laughs> and the four-year-old will keep it in her mouth for about 30 seconds. Uh-huh. The eight-year-old pulls for 20 minutes. Yeah. Yeah. And then from there, we go straight to yoga. We do do oatmeal sometimes before, but I've been learning that maybe that might not be the best either. And just running on an empty stomach is a good way. So then we go over to the yoga where I'll have the little kids' attention for about 10 to 15 minutes and the eight-year-old has to stay. And it's so the routine up until that point. So all of that uh, is, you know, we're, we're considering health, a little bit of discipline, a little bit of discomfort and obligation responsibility to the dogs, right? We don't falter ever. Do not fail to walk these dogs in the morning because we're lazy. So every morning we apply some sort of self-discipline. And then when you get to the yoga, now that implies so much for her to take from here to how to, I can't even imagine because it seems like that yoga story is just very old and deep. So where I am in it is knowing at least to do an hour in the morning and we offer it at the hostel for free. And we've been having 20 plus people there in the morning. We do a Kundalini. So the kids are exposing themselves to Kundalini, which is heavy in the pranayama and the, in the, the breath of fire. And, um, and then we do the, the Ashtanga poses and we always end it with meditation and we have a lot of Shavasana. And even if, even if, uh, you know, they aren't focusing on the breath or if they're doing things wrong, just to be there and watch the other people do it, see that it's a healthy group of people. So it's gathering the other people that were awake at seven that want to work on, you know, mind and body. And then I, I, those, those courses, is like open mic night, you know, it's like, I leave it open for discourse, but I kind of just go on ranting. But in those rants, like it's not, you lead it. Yeah. Sometimes, sometimes not, Mm -hmm. but I encourage anyone just to like we had that Walter guy who brought Kundalini and he was, I encouraged him to be very explanatory and we were learning about the history and stuff. And those are things she's hearing. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, subliminally or, you know, subconsciously, she'll be like absorbing just kind of like some of the mantras. She knows mantra. So later, it's like a lot of things like we heard before, you know, and then we don't even relate until years and years later. You know, very simple things. And yeah, being in India and not studying yoga while we're there. Yeah. <laughs> and now being more interested in it and learning more about the things that we had heard when we were there. Yeah. And so we can apply them now. And they actually make my practice rich in that, like, it was almost like we did the prelim- preliminary of yoga. We we went to India, you know, mm-hmm. and we just like, it's like, you got to go to India, I feel like, kind of. Yeah. Yeah. And then you see, you know, where the wood's cut from. And then okay, you take it home and, you know, talk about fire, but you got to see it at its source. So everything we learn, I feel like it has this, this sense of experience. You know, we were on the Ganges in the, in places where it was, it was really rich with spirituality and, and culture that produces yoga. Mm -hmm. So yeah, then the girls get to do that. They, they move around. I push it, you know, Anicha has to do it. If I don't catch her doing it, I do this discipline where she has to swim. So if she doesn't try in yoga, she doesn't have to try when she swims. So I take her out on the boat to the first mooring, which is Vila Pena, and she has to swim into shore. <laughs> she doesn't like it because she has to do it alone. 
And she usually doesn't try, she doesn't half try with the swim. <laughs> she tries hard and she gets to shore. And she appreciates the challenge because she knows she's a good swimmer. She doesn't get challenged hard very often. And I'm the only one that does. And there's a sense of survival and accomplishment, you know, and like the world is big. And when she's coming in, people are congratulating her because they've noticed, they're noticing an eight-year-old swimming in from deep water. Mm -hmm. And the whole mental thing, getting over the idea of sharks and crocodiles, mm -hmm. which... Yeah, she, man. She watches Shark Week. <laughs> <laughs> and you're right. I mean, she came in just beaming. I mean, she came out of her way. I didn't, I wasn't there for her coming into shore, but saw her later that night and she explained the whole thing to me and why, why you made her do that. <laughs> and then the result of her making it in and feeling really good about herself. I mean, she was articulate about that. You could see she was very proud of herself. Cool. Yeah. yeah. So I think you are extracting the result that you hope for. It's not like damaging her. <laughs> yeah. And then at school, yeah, and I got a little bit of an issue with school just because, like, I didn't think I would conform to kind of a American curriculum. We have been. I think it is a good thing in that, like, the school is dedicated. The other uh, parents and the teachers are all like-minded people. We're all, like, on the same page, and everyone's doing a good job. It, uh, I guess the fact that it's long, you know, it's like... It's already hard for me to get a lot of time with her. So mm -hmm. the time I do have, I don't like to share with, with the formal education, but they're doing a good job. So I'm happy with it. And, yeah. but it, like I was telling somebody, the day she shows disinterest is the day I will encourage it, you know, to not go. Yeah. <laughs> but as long as she's interested, I think it's a really good thing. So then if she does show disinterest, then what's the, the alternative, because you're not going to just let her sit and eat chips and watch TV. Like, no, hell you don't no. want to go to school. Like, okay, what are we going to do today then? So, what's your what's your? Career? Yeah, school seems easy next to life with dad. <laughs> so we'd probably sell a boat somewhere, do coastal kayaking, a long bike ride, a long horseback ride, mm -hmm. days and days, see new places, mm -hmm. or just work hard on a project. You know, we're very project oriented here, building new yoga platforms, doing art. You know, painting for the multiples of places we have. Just improvement, gardening, cooking, you know, vegan, vegetarian eating, mm -hmm. you know, trying to start our own bread, trying to, you know, grow tomato seeds in our kitchen. Just like there's stuff to do all day long. Yeah. What do you think you got that from? I mean, you grew up with your mom who was tremendously loving and supportive, but didn't instill any of that. And you really would like, yeah, not the discipline, you know, like I know you spent summers with your dad, not every summer, but like you think you take most of that from him or did you kind of come up with that through reading books or emulating other parents. I think it was a, just part of both of it. And, and I, just a big personality thing. I'm a lot like my uncle Patrick. Mm -hmm. He's kind of neurotic, you know, <laughs> and like a good storyteller likes jokes. And I spent a lot of time with him, remember? So, um, I feel like I'm a lot like him. I can see myself a bit in the future. I talked to him the other day and mm -hmm. it was good to hear his voice because he's just like, you know, sometimes I imagine him more, more, um, you know, just like, maybe more excited than when I actually talked to him, how just cool, calm and loving the guy is. But it's, uh, it was told to me in a, in a karate form once because my neighbor, he got Richard, he got me into Shotokan karate, um, in my early twenties when I'd be back in California. And I asked him why his wife, um, didn't do it. And he said, because she had a really strict childhood. And so the, the regiment, the strictness in the dojo for Shotokan was really high. And she, it reminded her too much of that growing up. So she, it didn't feel good where he and I had these really loose childhoods 
And we just like, you know, we wanted the challenge and we didn't bother the temporary discomforts of such the discipline. So, you know, we really liked it. And maybe that has something to do with it too, is like, because I didn't have the discipline and maybe it's like how things alternate back and forth. So now my kids are going to grow up to be super lenient on their kids. Mm-hmm. Um, who knows? My dad had a lot of discipline in his childhood and he applied a lot of discipline, but it seems like the discipline, it's like a, it's a better functionality of like reality. Cause it's, it's, you, you get a higher demand, a higher deal, more choices. And when more productivity, you, yeah. And that equals the, the opportunity to have these choices. If you put things into perspective, mm-hmm. um, my family has been good at doing that. Like I just told the story the other day about how Patrick stopped once and we bought an ice cream cone just out of nowhere. I had to have been like a Nietzsche's age, maybe eight, nine, 10. And he says, what good is making money if you don't know how to spend it? And we enjoyed the ice cream cone. Mm-hmm. And then other things like that. And then things like learning how to live without money and finding that happiness, like you said, Mm -hmm. because I agree, man, those people, people had happiness. I think, um, some of the information that I know of is that there is a certain level of poverty that does breed a a real discomfort because when you don't know where you're going to eat and stuff or like what you're going to eat and you have kids and you have these responsibilities and it can be really strenuous on your health. You know, your stress is high. There is a level of comfortability. Like you have the mango tree, the avocado tree in your backyard. You live next to the ocean. Everybody gets enough to eat. Now it's about, now you laugh. And okay, you build in one room every three years off your house for your next kid that's growing up and starting their family. Yeah. People are genuinely happy at that level. Right. But there is a little bit of a level. I, I would agree. I see what you're saying. I mean, yeah, it's not something you can generalize to some of these places we hear about in Africa, which neither of us have been to yet, but where they talk about poverty being super real and gnarly <laughs> yeah. or war-torn countries, you know. <laughs> it's like horrible. We ate out of garbage cans, but to try it, yeah, you know. I mean, they don't even have garbage cans to eat out of. It's like there's nothing there. No. So. <laughs> yeah, I want to go back just real quick because the yoga thing is so interesting to me and, and, and fun to watch because for the audience, I'm actually speaking now, is, uh, you know, John's not a, a licensed instructor. He's not... <laughs> He's learned all of his practices through other instructors who have come down. And he's a, it's a great yoga class. I mean, I love actually coming. Thanks, Jake. And, uh, the one thing that's always interesting to me is you can really see it on the faces of the people that you teach who are yogis. And you can really see them battling with their own ego because they instantly, not instantly, but they, they start to get a feel for that. You don't actually have, uh, haven't been taught how to do this. You know, you're kind of freestyling it. You make jokes. It's a very casual type of yoga. And what I love about it is that you evoke this ego from these, these very yogi people who take their practice real seriously. And you can see that battle going on within them and they're, they're losing the whole point of the practice, you know, which I think is just so profound and magical. It's like if they were capable of, um, stepping back, and really separate themselves from that ego. Like this guy doesn't really know what he's talking about in this situation. Cause he's told us that this is for X, Y, Z when it's really for M Y K or whatever. It's like, I feel like they would get so much more out of it. Yeah. You know? But they're sitting there judging you the whole time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Rather than just doing the practice I like it. to I like stay it. mindful and just kind of go through, you know, do the moves. I like it when they leave. Yeah. Halfway. <laughs> yeah. That's okay. It's a, uh... Somebody told me once with the meditation, 
it was a it was an English speaking English monk at the Saratani, the Chaya that um, temple over there, and he uh, said that a lot of people that really take these practices strong, or this one in particular, the, the Anapana and the Vipassana, are people with issues with suffering. You know, mm-hmm. like and, mental suffering. Like any, yeah, I think more mental suffering. Like, mm-hmm. like, um, was it Gautaman Siddhartha, the Buddha? Before he was the Buddha, he was like a prince suffering, like maybe just a sensitive kid. Yeah. And goes out and really needs to overcome this because like the suffering might be great. So I think kind of yoga the same, like when you, uh, you know, people want to associate themselves with something that's, that's working out and being healthy. And when you really hold onto it tight, it's maybe because you need it, you know, Mm -hmm. and the road's really long to be a yogi. So you can look the look and, you know, and know the, know the mantras or the, or the, the names for the poses or something. But like someone else who doesn't even do yoga, who's drinking coffee and smoking a cigarette, but in their state of mind is very yogesque or they, their life of servitude or whatever it is, it just doesn't have to do with those asanas. And that's, they're much further on the path, you know, like is if they just, you know, change their vehicle it would be called yoga you know or if they stop smoking or yeah. something i don't know but smoga actually <laughs> yeah but I, yeah i see those people too i always like it the the gauge for where people are in their mind is the are the balance poses mm-hmm. because most of the other ones you can stick and with flexibility these like gymnasts they're like a gymnast or you're an athlete you've stretched your whole life you come into yoga you're doing most all the poses right mm-hmm. making them look real good you know, and the rest of us who just didn't, you know, we're like really having a hard time. Yeah. Uh, even though we've been there for years, you know, still sitting what they call easy pose in this Kundalini, which is crossing your legs. Like every morning I do it, like it hurts, <laughs> you know, like it hurts yeah. real good. So yeah, sure. But then re- reminding myself through this teaching and everybody else is there bearing witness to my my chatter and ranting of trying to teach myself that this is only one of the eight limbs you know the that's also big for the kids to know too like like the yoga starts with with um you know just being a good person you know and it leads to you know your breathing and your consciousness over your emotions and your senses and control concentration and then there's some other, there's some other things too. And it leads to a samadhi, which is a mind and body and breath kind of connection. And ultimately, I think that leads to servitude because the Buddha gave service, um, trying to teach people this technique for liberation. He could have just been the Buddha and been liberated and, you know, why help everybody? And, mm-hmm. but he, he really went out of his way. And if you notice, like Mother Teresa, Gandhi, Nelson Mandela, Martin Luther King, like the people that just, they just vibrated on a higher level of peace and tranquility. They just like, they were more godlike, righteous, and really, um, they, uh, they kind of had those same, those same attributes similar across Mm -hmm. the board. So I think that's the, what I want to aspire to be because I mean, wow, you know, I know the struggle great for the, children of Martin Luther King and Nelson Mandela and stuff, but just them as people with more attention on the family, you know, cause those people tried to change the world. I don't think I can change the world. I feel like I'm more of a realist. I'm a libertarian. I'm a <laughs> self-governed person. I want to make an impression on the, on my kids and their friends because that's their peer circle and ultimately their influence. So 
That's why I'm also very aware of who I am to their friends and other kids in general, just because that's their generation. That's their future business partners. That's their, you know, potential, you know, real relationships, confidants and stuff like that. Like have them think of me in this sort of idealistic way too, or the best that they can, or I can provide. So yeah, take care of what we say, what we do and yeah. And enjoy the process because I mean, let's learn together. They say what you don't teach the kids, the kids will teach you. Mm-hmm. And that's for sure. For sure. <laughs> They're always come up with something funny and weird and awkward to say at the perfect moment. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> totally. Say, they say kids and drunks tell the truth. <laughs> yeah. Ain't that? And we got a bar yep. and kids running around. Yeah, <laughs> There's a lot of truth. So, I mean, Hurricane Nate comes in, destroys half your business. You're taking your kids now and, and really trying to instill practices and character that you think are valuable for them to grow up as you know mature young women and you see travel on the horizon maybe you know whatever amount of years years down the line you know whether it happens or not we we don't know yet but um do you ever see yourself going back to the states and like living like taking yourself out of the expat lifestyle and going back to the States? Or do you think like whether it's in Nicaragua, India, Japan, you'll always kind of try to reside outside of the U S uh, yeah, but it will be here. Like my kids are here. Um, Mm -hmm. and when I think of traveling, I think of like riding my bicycle around Nicaragua, horseback riding and and coastal kayaking Nicaragua. Mm -hmm. Um, mainly like, yeah, I'd like to get over to India and like, go do some yoga, mm-hmm. still not get certified. <laughs> I really, you know, lavish in the idea of it being inappropriate yoga. Yeah. Um, but because also to be close to my kids, you know, they I co-parent with their mothers and their mothers, um, are here. And so, you know, I wouldn't ask anyone to do anything other than the best they can. So I'll be here too, to raise yeah. those kids. Yeah, little by little, uh, little trips here and there until one of them wants something more. Or I see it's time for something more, then I'll shoot for that. That's when they're, te- I, you know, I'm thinking 11, 12 teenagers. Yeah. But until then, you know, give them, Nicaragua is a great place to get started. I mean, you got the poverty. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you're a phone call away from safety, but still, like, there's a lot of natural beauty here. Yeah. And then there's a lot of just, like, um, interesting cultural development and stuff and a lot of issues and things to talk about, great examples. It's just a neat place. It's not like we're in Irvine being all like, okay, so there's these other ideas, you know, there was this guy Che Guevara, you know, there's, you know, there is this place, Venezuela, that's a little bit like here, you know, that's nothing like here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you see the gardeners? Mm-hmm. Imagine a bunch of them really upset, <laughs> you know, you can't, fighting for their freedom. You can't do it. Yeah. Here it's like, okay, you build, you talk, and then also you get good feedback. It's relative. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I'm really, and then yeah, I am lucky just to show appreciation and gratitude to like Sofana's family and Peely and her efforts because Peely's a very conscious, strong woman. Some, I, I had kids with these women because I saw strength and independence that I knew my daughters would benefit greatly from. Mm-hmm. So, and they both embody those things. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Sofana's family in, in extension also has like, you know, they're lawyers and they're, they're super conscious and active and, and they're active in my kids' lives, so it's not the label by itself, but it's their actual interaction with the kids important. I know my kids benefit. And Peely and her friends, too, they just have this, like, great level of consciousness and conversation that I think they're, the kids are, are getting a lot of different sides to yeah. build a, to build a, 
kind of like a, just the background to then formulate their own ideas on their experiences. So, yeah, and then you fall back on a Nicaragua. You know, we go to the Oriental. You do it with us. Mm-hmm. Chapin was, thank you, Chapin, also. He comes out on my birthday, and we go to the Oriental with my two little ones. Do we have yeah. just the two little just ones? Little one. Yeah, and which helps because that's someone else carrying a kid. Otherwise, I carry them both. We buy books and groceries and then uh, to have lunch. Yeah, we have lunch at the market, but it's it's rugged. I mean, you have turtle eggs for sale. You have live iguanas. You have chickens and ducks, and then we go to the Oriental. So we're seeing, you know, bunnies and other exotic birds you don't always know. Like you got parrots for sale and turtles and lots of things. It's neat. Um, you know, there's, it's just really, it's really dense with poverty, you know, and inform, informality. Mm-hmm. And I think that's good too. Cause if you grow up in strip malls and, and Orange County where everything is planned and, and stores look a certain way. So you're, you can't negotiate the price of the, the t-shirt you, can't, you want. <laughs> yeah. And if you want to start business, then you buy a franchise or something and you fill a space that's, mm-hmm. you work on a, on a logistical dynamic. And those are informal markets, man. Out of like somebody's shirt pocket, they're selling some little, you know, squiggly something or, you know, booth after booth after cell phone, cell phone covers, cell phone covers, like, People make a living. You can make a living. And knowing that is good too, because people get in a point of desperation when I think financial hardships come. And if you have that to fall back on, like my dad gave me the, um, the props once he said, it's good. You went out and lived with nothing. So you know how to do it. Mm-hmm. So when you get to the bottom of the barrel, which by no means I'm at, but in some ways, like to sustain my lifestyle after Hurricane Nate, I'm, I, I can't do it. So mm-hmm. everything's taking a restructuring standpoint. So, but, um, if they see that informality and they, and they can conceptualize themselves being able to work off of that to ultimately reach their goals, then I think, uh, I think that's good. And back to it being depressing when you don't have that, um, and you don't think you have options then it can hurt. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just really quick. Cause I like to touch upon it. Um, I mean, you're not financially wiped out. Like hurricane Nate didn't completely crush your business. Like you still have enough cash flow to, although maybe not maintain the exact same lifestyle. Like you can still put your kids in school cause they're in private school and, um, pay for the things you need to pay for. Is that correct? Uh, yes and no. Like I never had an extravagant lifestyle. Like I did invest in a truck. Mm-hmm. But like, I still don't buy clothes. And I don't go out to dinner much. I had the option, mm-hmm. kind of, but before I, Hurricane Nate. No, but be, yeah, before Hurricane Nate. And now you don't. Now I don't have the option to go out drinking all night. <laughs> okay. No, and I don't have the option to drive up to Maltagalpa if I wanted to. Got it. Um, I. It's also prioritizing. Like if I, like, um, I'm still indebted to investors, so. I really, um, in being true to my investments, you know, I don't do those things. Right. Yeah. I could get some, get some cash based upon some stuff, but my obligations to them first. So I won't do anything extravagant, you know, even on a, on a mid level. I like living simple. We got everything Mm -hmm. here at the beach. We eat lentils. I don't eat meat. Yeah. You know, simple food. We have a pressure cooker Mm -hmm. make our own bread. So yeah, I'm good like that. It's a little different. Like I used to invite people. That's might be the difference is before that I invited very freely because I was uh, able to still 
um, provide for most of my obligations and, you know, make some invitations here or there. Like invite people to come stay, maybe eat for free. Yeah, it was eat and drink for free. Like, okay. you know, have friends around and, and hook them up. Got it. Um, but I'm also lucky because my kids have, you know, very ambitious mothers who work hard and, and take care of my kids too. So even though I feel like, um, you know, we have different parenting styles and some of the stuff is, you know, in, in excess, but they're working to sustain that. So mm -hmm. that's their right. And that's fine. But back to, um, having this taste of a little taste of a, of a step down helps me to reevaluate what my priorities are and the importance of those things. And, and thinking about things is important. Uh, you know, doing the right thing is important. Having good practice and regiment and discipline is important. Being a good person, period. You know, having the opportunity, seeing how people came out for me during this storm, seeing how some people, you know, weren't able to, they weren't strong enough themselves, you know, hoping to get myself to a nice strong level and be available to people I love and to be of service. It kind of mm -hmm. comes back to servitude, man. Like, it, I don't know if I... Did I tell this story on podcast where I went to Burma and <laughs> I was held again? Dude. So I come into Burma from, from the, in the Laishian province from China. And I think I'm the first cyclist to do this across that border to cross that border over land. Mm -hmm. It wasn't easy. And I did it and they forced me into a taxi for about five kilometers through this demilitarized zone kind of thing. And I got on the bike and I, and I rode and I spent a little over a month riding from that border down to, um, Rangoon. And yeah, I had a great time and I, and I actually got arrested in Burma for trespassing. I had a route that I had to go. Anyway, do this Burma thing. I, Myanmar, I go back to California and my dad says, Hey, I know these two ladies who go to Myanmar, go to Burma and they want to talk to you. So that everyone ends up at my dad's for dinner. You know, my dad's, it's mm -hmm. a great like feasting place. And so, they were telling me what's going on and they're trying to access these tribes up north of Lexian, um, to get them like medical help or something. But they, they might have been ex nuns, but now they were just trying to access and get them help. I don't really remember, but they were, um, they were asking me to go back with them because I'd been there and I knew a little bit and my experience there was real and I wasn't banned from Burma. They said I was, but they didn't do anything to really ban me. Mm -hmm. And kind of like Rambo leading the ladies up the river <laughs> to go help and save all the, the poor people. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Just like that. And so they, so they were trying to talk me into this and I had just got back from being over there for years, three years, I think. So, um, and I had learned meditation towards the end. So I thought I needed to keep going to monasteries and keep meditating to mm -hmm. find this enlightenment. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, I told them, I go, I think I need to work on myself. And I've been, you know, this meditation, I think is my important thing to do. And it's my path. And they said, all you're going to get out of this meditation is to learn how to be of servitude. And, 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 they, they, they were experienced. They had the right to say that at the time. I didn't think they did. I thought like, they don't know me. They don't know the depth of, they didn't meditate. Like I didn't feel those things and the impermanence and it resonating with all five of my senses. No, they had their own way. They found it, but they knew that the, the, I think the essence really of being a good person and, and, uh, and life might be that of doing for others. Sure. You do for yourself first. So you can do for others. It's that you can't, pour something into somebody else's cup if you don't have anything in your own. 
So take care of yourself. Be strong. Bob Marley says it. You mm -hmm. know, if you're strong, you help weak people. But helping people, it's a really gratifying feeling. And in little ways, I've been doing it more since this accident. I thought Kevin was dead. We'll get to that story. And in having, I had a lot of gratitude after that. Also, I, I cried a lot that day. And God, I haven't cried ever. <laughs> like, especially that much. You know, I'd been sensitive kid here and there. But like, I hit the sand and I cried and cried. And that released a whole lot of emotions that I think associate with like humility and gratitude, appreciation. And since then, like in little ways and the whole thing of rebuilding slowly and, and very organically in that we didn't have money and we weren't in a place where we had access to money. So everything we've been doing has really been by the skin of our teeth and seeing people help me and wanting to help them and also thinking about help, you know, like people who I thought were going to help, but didn't help. And, and how do I think about that? And what's a consequence, but not a punishment. And just like having a lot of ideas and the time to think about it. I don't, I'm not going sailing. We don't have any guests. I was essentially closed for October. So I had some time to think about it, mm -hmm. you know, and then also, uh, you know, old players in my life surfacing and, and then my personal life, you know, it not being easy, you know, it's just not. So yeah, a lot of time to, to kind of think about that servitude it comes out to doing things for other people. So in little ways, like the oxen cart comes over two days ago and the ox go too close to the water and it gets stuck in the sand. Well, now it's full of rocks that they got from the far end of the beach. They got to take all the rocks out. I go down and I help, right? They got a big smile. Thank you. I'm getting dirty. I was probably going to go swimming anyway. I felt good. Mm -hmm. I felt good. And that makes me feel good. Um, I'm sure it helped them feel good. You know, play it on. Maybe play they it forward. play it forward. Maybe they go see some, you know, girl with a backpack broke open and help them put, you know, her papers back in. I don't mm -hmm. know. Maybe not, but either way. It does seem in environments like this where everyone does need each other, they're, they're so quick to help no matter what. Yeah. You know, like I noticed that, you know, so I think around the world in environments where communities really rely on each other's help, it's, they're quick to help when help is needed. Also, when you don't have a lot of your own resources, right? So you, you need other people you know you might in the future because you don't have a lot of resources. Yeah. You're not rich. You don't have your own three cars, so if one breaks down, you just get in another one. So you make sure you're available for when it comes back around. And also, there's not a lot to do around here. You know, <laughs> you're just kind of hanging out. So when someone needs help, you know, maybe you get a free beer out of it. Maybe you don't. And it's just interesting, something new to do, a new challenge. Trying to figure <laughs> out how to get the oxen cart. Yeah, but either, anyway, you feel good. It's like that yoga. No matter what you, why you end up there, whether it's you want to look good, whether it's you want to find spirituality, whether it's because... You know, I'm making you do it, <laughs> mm -hmm. but like, you're still there, Yeah. you know, that's it. And that's the right place to be. It's the right place to start for everyone. It's all into individual. That's why those things like, uh, I heard it once put like, if you aren't good at something, enjoy that you're not good at it and that the path to getting good at it will be longer. And therefore you'll have greater length and time and experiencing the process of getting good at it. True. I think yeah. that's actually really wise because I'm not good at a lot of things and it's taken me a long fucking time to get good at them. Think how sensational it is when somebody that weighs like 300 pounds loses 200 pounds or something and, you know, and becomes like some bodybuilder, mm -hmm. right? Opposed to just like if you're average yeah, and then you get fit. Yeah, totally. You know, it's like, so 
you know, you can be the guy from Subway <laughs> and then go on to ruin your life being weirdo. Because <laughs> when he turned into be a pedophile, oh, too. Oh, God. <laughs> Everybody. Well, thank you for joining me. I really appreciate you coming on, as usual. And uh, I think no the problem. audience is anxiously going to wait that uh, next episode, too, where we get to hear more about the uh, adventures of having your boat sink. Because yeah. that was a wild one. But uh, let's just save that for next episode. I think that'll be a, a full, solid episode of conversation. Yeah. We'll get Kevin in on that one. Yeah. It'll be fun. We'll make, we'll make him speak English. I know. He, speak, he told me the whole story in English. It's perfect. Yeah. So, yeah. Thanks again, brother. Right on, Jay. Cheers. Thank you for listening to Misfits and Rejects. I hope this inspired you to think about your life situation, where you're at, and possibly make a big decision to choose something different for yourself if you're unhappy with where you're at in life. I hope these people that I interview inspire you to go out, spread your wings, and try something new, to live a different lifestyle that maybe your whole life people were telling you was the wrong one, but when in fact it... It's the perfect one for you. And I'll see you next time.